to the Uproom Frisco podcast. To learn more about your Frisco, please visit uproomfrisco.com. So thank you, Jesus, for growing us. Thank you, Lord, for the continual abiding of the Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost, we, we continue to give you center stage. We ask that you'd be like a rabbi, teaching us wonderful things from Scripture, opening our eyes to see the wonderful nature of our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, um, I was sitting in my house the other day reading a book, and um, my son Shiloh, he's two years old. He just comes barreling right up, climbs up into my lap, blocking my view of the book, and he snuggles his way into like a perfect seating position, and all of his muscles just completely relax, except for the hand holding his milk bottle. <laughs> and <clears throat> it's because that's, that's his favorite seat in the house, is in dad's lap. And, um, you know, I could have been doing something really important. I could have been like FaceTiming the president for all he cares. He just knows that he belongs here and there's not a question in his heart as to whether or not he can approach me with confidence. There's no question in his mind whether or not I want to be near him. It's never even crossed his mind for him to think maybe, maybe dad doesn't like this or maybe dad doesn't want to be near me. He has complete access. And, and I never want that to change. Of course, someday he'll be as big as a horse and not sit in my lap, but the heart-to-heart connection <laughs> will be there. He'll always know that he can come to me. That's the desire of my heart. But what if someone told my son Shiloh that I disapproved of him? What if someone convinced him that there is some sort of annoyance, there is some sort of anger in me towards him, and he stopped freely coming to me? And what if this person you know, told my son, you know, I, your dad, he, he tolerates you. but he doesn't really like you. He, he puts up with you for a time, but he doesn't enjoy you. But you can do things to earn your way back into his good graces. You can do these things to, to win back his, his affection. And what if he grows up like that, thinking, like believing that lie? And as he you know, enters teen years and into adulthood, instead of even trying anymore to win his way back into my good graces and to uh, try to fix that disapproving thing that's inside of me, what if he just gives up and decides that he hates me and, and years and years go by and the resentment grows until one day all he can think about is just punching me? And this whole time, I've never disapproved of him. This whole time, I've never lacked any affection or feelings of acceptance or wanting him to be near me. But because he believes that lie, he acts like it. What would I do as a good dad to win back the heart of my son who has lost his mind? What would I do? If the day came when we did have a... uh, you know, a meeting, a, a coming together, 
And he decides just to let me have it, just screaming his accusations at me. What if he, he's physically hurting me? Do you know that as a good father, I would take every blow? And I would say, you don't know what you're doing. I've always loved you. I've always wanted you near. You can hit me a thousand times if you need to. I'll take every ounce of your accusation. I just want you to trust me again. The greatest deception that the enemy ever pulled off was convincing us that we are not the apple of his eye. That we're not the sunshine of his life. That we're not his beloved. That there's something we have to do to earn his love again. You know, even the way I respond to my kids' failures when I'm manifesting the Lord rightly, <laughs> if my son falls on his face, if I, if, if I know it's going to take my son falling on his face 33 times to get something, I'm not going to be mad at him if he's at number 25 of falling. If your father in heaven knows it's going to take you 70 times of falling on your face and making an epic mess of your life, he actually starts to get excited when you're getting up into the 60s. I know every dad in this room, <clears throat> we've thought about what we'd would do if our child's life was threatened, right? Men, you can attest. Like, you've kind of envisioned how you'd respond if, if their life was in danger. And, uh, I've already th thought through, like, what I would do, you know, if my kids were, if it came down to me or them facing death, it's gonna be me. <laughs> it's my... <laughs> Those Backstreet Boys for all of you over 50. It was, oh, NSYNC, sorry, sorry. What's that one? I'm sorry, babe. I, I'll buy you flowers. Seriously, if one, of, if one of my kids is in the front yard and someone snatches them, I've already run through this in my mind. I'm jumping on that hood. You know, I'm jumping on the hood of that car I'm, and I'm holding on until either I'm thrown off or I've busted through the windshield somehow. You know, like I would do anything. Every father has that same kind of heart for, for their kids. And, or if, if my son was playing in the front yard and I saw like a, a dog snarling, like charging him from behind. And my, my son is facing me. Like my response is going to be ferocious. Like something's going to come out of me, a roar. And I'm going to run at my son and right past him. And, I'm, and we're going to tussle, this dog and I. And you know what would happen is my son, if he's looking at me in the face and I get all ferocious and I'm running at him, he might think that I'm going for him, but I'm going at the thing that's about to destroy him. If he's playing out in the grass and the, you know, he doesn't realize that there's a snake 
you know, slithering around, I'm gonna freak out, right? I don't even like snakes, but I'm gonna go at that thing. And it might look like my anger is directed at him until I rush past him and kill the thing that was about to kill him. That's our father. You know, when, when Jesus was being crucified and beaten, you know, we considered him stricken. We considered him cursed, right? But it was us that thought he was cursed. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the results of the curse or the consequences of when we screwed up things really, really bad in the garden is the earth would produce thorns. That's what it says in Genesis 3.18, that uh, things are going to get a lot harder for Adam and Eve to make the ground produce fruit. The, the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles, and travelers that go to Israel will actually call um, it the, the land of thorns. These giant thistles that would grow to the height of a man on horseback cover like so much of, of Israel. Uh, it's so thick in certain areas that a lot of the most historic battlefields and cities are um, they're rendered completely inaccessible by these thorns that grew up in that land. And I believe that the thorns represent self-preservation. You know, like a rose is beautiful. You want to go and jump into a rose bush, but you know you're not going to, right? Because the thorns. It's self-protection, self Preservation is what the thorns mean. Do you know the, the first time that it mentions the word love in the Bible? It's in Genesis 22, 2. 2, For some reason in the book of love, God waited 22 chapters and two verses to mention the word love. It's because he spoke to Abram and he wanted to pair it up with what love really means. And he says to Abram, take Isaac, your son whom you love and sacrifice him. God waited all that time to use the word love so that we wouldn't miss that love and sacrifice could never be apart from one another. <clears throat> and when Abram obeys the Lord and takes Isaac, we all know that like God's not into child sacrifice, right? Like we can just like put a pin in that. No, he, Abram goes and, and he's obeying God. God has this amazing plan, of course, when when Abram has obeyed the Lord, he sees, an angel tells him to stop, and he sees a ram with its head stuck in a bush. And it, in Genesis, <clears throat> that's in Genesis 22, 13, it says it's stuck in a bush, but in Acts, it actually clarifies and says that the ram's head is stuck in a thorn bush. And even when Moses sees the, the vision of of God in a burning bush, and it says in Acts that it's actually a thorn bush. You're starting to pick up on something here. Jesus comes along. He's captured, he's stripped naked, he's beaten, and a crown of what is put on his head. This means that when God said that the earth would produce thorns, he knew that he would be the one carrying the curse upon himself to win back our hearts. Every single thing that he per, like, pronounced as the consequences of sin in the garden, he knew that he himself would carry for us, that he would become a curse for us. He himself would be pierced by the very lie 
we think that we need to protect ourselves from the Father. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was stripped naked and beaten and mocked, humiliated, and why those thorns were pressed onto his scalp? Why he was tortured and died in agony? Did any of the other sacrifices throughout history face that kind of doom? As far as I can see, like all the, all the animals that were sacrificed, they were killed in a pretty humane manner, right? They just, they, you needed the death and you needed the blood, right? None of these sacrifices were so horribly treated. They died quickly. No, obviously, no one tortured the animals or mocked them. If God just had to be paid off with death and blood, then Jesus could have died in a very quick manner, right? But no, Jesus was stripped because ever since the fall, we believe there's nothing more shameful than nakedness. We were pouring out our deception-based rage on God. He was tortured because we were pouring out our accusations and rage on him. We treated God the way we thought our God would treat us if he had the chance. He was nailed to a cross to slowly die because a quick death is too good for someone who dares to insinuate that you could be that close to the Father. We considered, considered him cursed. We considered him stricken by God. Because cursed by God is everyone who dies on a tree, right? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You know that Paul is actually quoting Deuteronomy 21 when he says this, but for some reason he changes the verse ever so slightly. Because in Deuteronomy 21, it actually says, cursed by God is everyone who is hung on a tree. But Paul knew that Jesus was never cursed by God. Jesus was receiving the curses that we would throw upon him. He became a curse for us. When Jesus crawled up onto that cross, he laid down where he saw the Father laying already. Because he only does what he sees the Father doing, right? That wasn't suspended on the cross. You know that there's a name for Jesus. Uh, one of his names is the last Adam. I want you guys to hang with me for just a second. You guys, the, the last Adam, Jesus, endured the shame of the cursed tree to swallow the shame of the first Adam from the first tree. He reached into our bellies and pulled out the fruit that deceived us. Right now, a repentance is sweeping the earth of people who are realizing that the tree that Adam ate from is not more powerful than the tree Jesus died on. 
Love has always been on a cross. Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Keep going. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Keep going. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Keep going. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Guys, Peter didn't get rebuked for screwing up. Jesus rebuked Satan, and like a good dad, got between Satan and his boy Peter, just like I would get between my son and a dog coming at him. Get behind me, Satan, which means now Jesus is standing between his boy and the thing that would kill him. Taking up our cross, Jesus jumps into this. Taking up our cross doesn't mean that we're walking around declaring God's wrath. It means that we're compelled by love to die for our enemies and redeem them out of their insanity. Because that's what Jesus did, right? It means that we're always carrying around his death so that his, his life of love would be manifesting through us all the more. The rebuke wasn't about Peter screwing up. It was about Satan trying to separate Jesus from his cross. Love from his cross. Love is always ready to sacrifice, just like I've thought about what I would do for my kids so that if the moment comes, I would be prepared. He, from before time, was operating in self-sacrificial love. In fact, it says that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, which means that before there was even a chance for men to screw up, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were already operating in self-sacrificing, other-centered love. It's their mode of operation. So Jesus, in that moment, he's actually saying to Satan, don't you dare think that you can remove me from my fatherly compelled love to lay down my life for my kids. I'm gonna end with a story I think some of you guys have heard before. I tuck in my kids every night, and we have three daughters that sleep in the same room, which is always a party. <laughs> and this one night, I'm, I'm tucking them in, and Della is, uh, she's either five or six. I think she was five. And when I came in the room, her two older sisters were kind of laughing and kind of making fun of Della for something. And, and I was like, what's going on? And they said, Dad, Della thinks there's a monster under her bed. And they're kind of, you know, poking fun at her. And I, and I turned to Della and I said, is that right? You think there's a monster? Do you want me to crawl under there for you? 
And she, and she gets this scared look on her face because she's so convinced that there, there actually might be like a monster under there. But then I see her get kind of hopeful as I actually get down on my hands and knees and crawl under her bed and, and discover so many long lost Barbies and dust bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> and like any normal dad, I screamed and shook the bed to terrify her for just a second. <laughs> <clears throat> But then, I, but then I poked my face up over the edge of the bed, and we locked eyes, and she started laughing, and the other girls started laughing, and I said, you want to come down here with me, and I'll show you this. No. And so Della, like, she's still a little bit scared, but because dad is going to go there with her, she crawls under, all the way under the bed with the lights off. It's a dark night, and she sees that there's nothing under there to be afraid of. And so um, there are several times since then when... I would come in the room and they'd say, Dad, do the thing again. Like, the, pretend like there's a monster under the bed because the thing that used to make them afraid is now a laughing matter. I crawled into a non-existent lie to redeem my child from a fear of a thing that doesn't exist. Jesus crawled into every deception in our minds to redeem us out of the great lie. And maybe this morning we need to ask dad to crawl under our bed again. Can we do that together? Can we stand in his presence? Father, you know every place of fear in our hearts. You know every, every string the enemy has pulled in the past that made us dance in fear. You know every place where we believe lies about you. We pray right now that you would crawl under the bed and destroy that lie that has kept us in bondage, that lie that has kept us at a distance from you, that lie that makes us believe we have to do something for your acceptance, that lie that has made us believe you only tolerate us but don't like us, that lie. Tear it down, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and show us your great affection and how you love the stuffing out of us. And how like a dad desires to hug their child straight into their own heart and keep them there forever, you're the only one who is able to do it. And you hugged us in to your heart to keep us forever. We thank you, Jesus, for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.